the word of our Lord from Paul's epistle to the Colossians. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints. Because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which has come to you as it is also in all of the world and is bearing and bringing fruit forth. As it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth. As you also learned from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who also declared to us your love in the Spirit. For this reason, we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with all the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and long suffering with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, Yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister." And I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God, the mystery, which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints to them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom, 
that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. To this end I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. Father, we pray that you would bless the reading of your holy word. Open our eyes, open our ears, draw us into your kingdom. In the name of your son Jesus we pray. Amen. Today, we are reminded of the reality of the kingdoms of this world. It's April 15th. It's tax day. A day that we love to hate. A day that we hate to love. We're reminded that we live in this world among kingdoms. There's also the constant, seemingly never-ending wars in the Middle East. We hear of new strikes in Syria. Our nation has pending negotiations with North North Korea. There's the constant barrage of news. News about the president, news about the FBI, news about those things that we say kitchen table discussions are all about. And I always wonder, why in the world are our kitchen table discussions always political? Can't we have different kitchen table discussions? But we're in the midst of kingdoms. We've been praying for a missionary friend. David mentioned Bob and Rosa. We prayed for him just a moment ago. Down in Honduras, serving amidst violent political unrest. We live in the midst of kingdoms. We're reminded of this reality constantly. Some things that happen in the kingdoms of this world are morally good while others are morally bad and yet others are morally neutral. Not all kingdoms are created equally and not all kingdom actions are morally equal. Nonetheless, the kingdoms of this world are a constant and obvious reality to us. We are continuously reminded of them for we live in their midst. We can't escape them. We can't just run and hide. This is where we live. It's a shame that as God's people, we aren't always aware of His kingdom. Because there is another kingdom at play. There is the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. The kingdom in which Jesus Christ is Lord. And that kingdom is just as real as the kingdoms of this earth. In fact, that kingdom, you might even say, is even more real. For that is the kingdom that has created all that there is. And that is the kingdom whose king has died to redeem all that there is. The Apostle Paul insists upon the reality of this kingdom, even now. Not something to look forward to in the life to come, but even now he insists upon the reality of this kingdom for those who are born into it through faith who are welcomed into it through the waters of baptism, who celebrate it in the breaking of bread at the table of Christ. It is a real kingdom. It is not a figment of our imaginations, and it is not something that is ever only always out in the future that we'll one day get to. The kingdom of God is now. That's 
why we go to church. That's why we preach the gospel. That's why we share our faith. That's why we sing to Jesus. Because He is the King of the kingdom. By now you might very well be getting tired of hearing me preach about the kingdom. I feel like I preach on it often. There was a preacher who was asked, why do you keep preaching? Unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And his reply was, because unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And so why do I keep harping on this same thing, the same kingdom? Because we simply aren't living in that reality. We go about our daily lives and we forget that we're citizens of a different world. We forget that all around us, all the people we interact with, all of the things that we take part in have an effect upon the kingdom of heaven. All of the people are being drawn to the kingdom of heaven. Everyone we meet is either a citizen, was once a citizen, could maybe be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And we simply don't live in that reality far, far too much. The resurrection of Jesus is what gives life and shape to the New Testament. It is the climax of the Gospels. It is the hope of the life to come, not just that we'll get to heaven when we die, but the resurrection of the body, as the creed says. The resurrection of Jesus is what defines and shapes the Christian life now. You see it all over the pages of Paul's epistles. It is what defines and shapes the ministry of the church in the world. Why do we live in the world? Why do we do good? Why do we preach the gospel? Because Jesus has been raised from the dead. It is what declares victory over not just death and hell, but over sin in this life. It is the resurrection of Jesus that proclaims that Jesus is indeed Lord and King. In Colossians 1, the Apostle Paul puts together a series of concentric circles. He says that the mystery that has been hidden for all ages, the mystery that God has in His goodness and in His wisdom has, has willed to make known to the world, to the Gentiles, to, to all of the world, to His saints abroad, is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And so if you'll imagine with me, and got an image up here to help, Paul is, is constructing a theology in which Christ is living in the church, in, or in the believer. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And the believer is living in the church, and the church is living in the world. That is the way God has established it. That is the way God reaches the world. That is the way the gospel goes out throughout all of the kingdoms of this earth is by Christ living in us, us living in life together, and us living in the world as his witnesses and witnesses to the resurrection. What does it mean to live in the reality of the kingdom of heaven? 
keeping this image in mind, I want to go back through Colossians 1 and unpack some of what Paul makes quite clear about living in the reality of the kingdom of heaven. Living in the kingdom of heaven means living as part of a new family. You see this throughout the chapter. As he points to the faith and life of the believers at Colossae. He says, we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, of your love for all the saints. Because they're connected to all the saints. They're connected. They've been brought into the body. He acknowledges the faithfulness and the stewardship of Epaphras, their minister. And he says that Epaphras has declared to Paul, to Timothy, to their partners in the gospel, the love of the believers at Colossae. Their love that they have in the Spirit. He tells them that he gives thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints. This this idea of being part of a new thing, a new creation, a new work, a new family. He declares that Christ is not just Lord, but He is also head of the body, which is the church. Christ died not just for individuals. He died for the church. Christ loves the church. In the church, Christ is putting together a new family. And living in the reality of the kingdom of God is not just about trying to plug away through life and make it to to heaven one day. It's about living as part of this new family. Paul says he even is suffering for the sake of not just the individual believers at Colossae, but for the sake of the church. For the sake of Christ's body, for the sake of this heavenly family that is living in the midst of the kingdoms of the earth. You know, no matter how hard you try, you can't live a solitary Christian life. Why? It's not because you don't have enough power and ability. It's not for lack of willpower. It's because there's no such thing as a solitary Christian life. God didn't create such a thing. He doesn't will such a thing. John Wesley said the gospel of Christ knows no religion, but social In other words, living in community, living in fellowship with others. It knows of no holiness, but social holiness. You've been born into a new family. And families share life together. They nourish one another. They find rest together. They celebrate together. They struggle together. They endure aggravations together. Sometimes they drive one another nuts. We've been born into a new family. 
And living in the kingdom of heaven means living as part of a new family. Living in the kingdom of heaven also means living dead to sin and alive to God. Paul's prayer for the Colossians is that they would be filled with all the knowledge of God's will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. And he says, so that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him and bearing fruit or being fruitful in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God. He said, you have been delivered from the power of darkness. You've been brought into or conveyed into the kingdom of the Son of His love. And in His Son, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, the washing away of the old life, the putting away, putting to death the life that once was, the life of sin. And Paul declares that it is Christ that we preach, warning every man, teaching every man in all wisdom, so that we might present every man perfect in Christ. The power of the gospel destroys the power of sin in us. Paul picks up on this theme in the middle of his epistle to the Romans. Shall we continue in sin so that grace might abound? If if God's grace redeems us of sin. Well, let's keep on sinning so that God's grace can be celebrated all the more. And Paul says, oh, God forbid such a thing. If we've been made alive in Christ, then we are dead to sin and alive to God. The power of the gospel destroys the power of sin in us. And so living living in the midst of the kingdom of heaven means living lives that are dead to sin and alive to God. And it doesn't matter the sin. Christ can kill it, though it might hurt. It doesn't matter the wounds that sin have placed upon our lives, the marks that we have because of sin. Christ can heal them by His wounds. It's for that reason that He was wounded. But the power of the gospel is not just power over sin, but it's also power toward God. There's a positive element. And and Paul even emphasizes that positivity more in Colossians 1 than, than the negativity of power over sin. He talks even more so about power toward God in the gospel. He invites them to walk worthy of God. In his first epistle to the Thessalonians, he tells them that walking that, that they are invited to walk worthy of God who calls you into His own kingdom and glory. And how often are, in our lives are we failing to live in this, re, this kingdom reality? No, we try to contain sin. We try to hide it. We try to contain it. We try to maybe not do it quite so much, but we certainly don't live, most of us, as dead to sin and alive to God. We think of the Christian life as sin maintenance. And there's no victory in that. 
God has brought us out of darkness and into His kingdom. And we ought to live like it. But too often we don't. Living in the reality of the kingdom of heaven means living in service to Christ for the sake of the world. You cannot miss that when you read Paul's word to the Colossians. People he's never even met. And his love for them and their love for him and the rest of the church that spread abroad throughout the Roman kingdom, the empire. He acknowledges the work of Epaphras. He acknowledges that they have come to Christ by hearing the gospel and by receiving it in faith. The movement of the gospel, the shape of that movement is always from the believer into the church and from the church out into the world, throughout the nations. Paul sees himself, just as Epaphras sees himself, as serving Christ in the church for the sake of the world. There's an emphasis on the proclamation of the gospel and on witness to those that are outside the faith. In his second epistle to the Corinthians, Paul says that God has reconciled us to himself in Christ and he's, he's deputized us. He sends us out as ambassadors reconciling, bringing the ministry and the word of reconciliation to the world so that he can appeal to the world through the church to be reconciled to God. And so there's this constant movement of the gospel outward, beyond oneself. The work that Christ has done in you, the work that Christ has done in me, he wants to to, to hitch up against someone else so that that work can spread. And the work that he's doing in our midst, he doesn't want to be contained to this group. He wants others to experience it. This is how we've all been brought to Christ, through others. There's not a one of us who got here ourselves. Not a single one of us. Whether it was our parents, our grandparents, whether it was a friend, whether it was a crazy preacher at some point, we've all come to Christ through the influence of others, through the sharing of others. But we don't live in that reality. We think of the Christian life as just me and Jesus and one day we'll get to heaven. But that's not living in the kingdom of heaven. Living in the kingdom of heaven means living a life that is shaped by the cross. Life that is defined by suffering and rejection, heartache, Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings for you. 
and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, the church. He says, to this very end, to the perfection of others, as they are being conformed to the image of Christ, to this end I labor, striving according to his working which works in me mightily. Paul sees himself as being shaped by the cross of Jesus. Christ is the archetype of a life that is shaped by the cross. He is the image that we are to reflect. But Paul, he may not say it here, hey, I'm an example, follow me, but he clearly is an example, as is Epaphras. They are examples of lives that are being poured out for the sake of the gospel, that are being lived for the sake of the church, for the sake of the world. Paul tell the Corinthians in his second epistle to the Thessalonians in his second epistle to them your growth in faith your love for one another and your continual faithfulness despite persecution despite trials despite suffering that is how you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God The sad fact is that most people who bear the name Christian do not live in the reality of the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is always something out there, something on the other side, something to eventually attain, something when we lay our weary bodies down or better yet, when our weary bodies are laid down, that then we might inherit. But Christ rose from the dead to bring the kingdom to life now, here, in our midst. He who rose from the dead on the third day raises, raises us up and blazes a trail before us, beckoning us to follow him into a new and living way. He beckons us to live in the reality of the kingdom of heaven now. Meanwhile, we're too busy playing around with God, playing around with sin, and playing around with fading toys. I remember being in the seventh grade. I had already put my baseball career behind me. Several years playing baseball as a, as a, as a young one. And um, I decided to sign up for football. I was a little guy. Um, wasn't much of a football player. I was a bigger fan than a, than a player. But seventh grade football, I think I was like on the third screen, no, string, uh, Bill. Didn't get much playing time. And I remember um, after months of practice and whatnot and learning how to hit and learning how to take hits and learning how to tackle. I was a linebacker, not much of a linebacker, a little scrawny thing and not really all that committed. I remember we were having a big game and um, 
we were hosting it. We were playing at the high school. We were playing in the high school stadium. My high school last this past season actually won uh, state championship for 6A football in Mississippi. But we were playing in a in a in a in a a big setting, you know, the little seventh grade football team playing in the high school, playing in the stadium, fans and parents all up in the up in the crowds in the bleachers. And it's probably like the third or fourth quarter. And I've maybe gotten out onto the field once for maybe a couple of plays or so. And me and my buddy Robert Andrews, he's pastor of a church in Vicksburg now. We're sitting on the sideline and we're we're being a couple of dumb twelve year old kids. I, I forget how old we were in seventh grade, but we're being knuckleheads and we're poking at each other and you know trying to stay away from each other and you know just acting like a couple of idiots on the sideline. And that went on for a while, an embarrassing long period of time in the middle of a game. Games happening out on the field, and we're over here acting like a bunch of idiots. I remember after the game how disappointed and frustrated my dad was with me. That was one of the one of the few times in my life I felt that I had totally frustrated my dad. He's up in the stands watching a football game. And not only is his son not getting a chance to play all that much, but his son doesn't even seem to care. He's just sitting on the sideline, goofing off, acting like an idiot. I wonder if Robert remembers that. I do. And I probably do because of how frustrated my dad was. I was completely oblivious. And that's how most Christians live their lives. Not only are we not in the game and we're just sitting on the sidelines, we don't even have a shot to get in the game because, quite frankly, we don't care about the game. Christ is shouting out to us, look alive, come on. We're going somewhere, we're building a kingdom, and we're sitting on the sidelines just goofing off. Playing around. Playing around with our relationship with God, not really taking it all that seriously. Playing around with our favorite sins. Tinkering with our toys. And here we are thinking we're actually on the team. Living that kind of Christian life, it's deadly. Does a Christian have to go to church? Can you be a Christian and live a solitary Christian life? Well, the Scriptures seem to declare that that won't last for very long. 
I never played eighth grade football. Surprise, right? And it wasn't really because of skills. It wasn't, it had nothing to do with an inability to play, an inability to learn to play, an inability to get stronger. All that could happen. The reason why I didn't play eighth grade football is because I knew that I was content to just sit on the sidelines and goof off. God has so much more in store for us than we imagine. The question is, are we interested in it? Or would we rather just play games? He invites us to live in the kingdom of heaven now. He invites us to live lives that are transformed by the power of the gospel. He invites us to live lives where we are offering others who are dying to know peace and joy. To know real self-giving love. He invites us to share that with them. And the thing that really matters in our lives is do we care enough about what God is offering us? And do we care about enough about what God is wanting through us to offer to others? Or are we content to just live in the kingdoms of this world? Let's pray.